Let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. That's on page 1008, if you're using the church Bible. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read together verse 20 to 22. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Father, you've given us this, your word. Please give us your Holy Spirit to grasp and understand it, we pray, and to give you glory. Amen. So here we have three brief sentences summarizing the lives of Abraham's descendants and focusing, do you notice, on the latter part of each of their lives. Back in verse 13, the writer has made this statement, all these died in faith. And if I can remind you of the bigger picture, what this chapter has been all about is that we should have faith, the end of chapter 10, and that we should persevere in our faith. In other words, not lose it. Not lose it by shrinking back and being destroyed, but persevering, keep keeping on in our Christian lives. And what it said so far in chapter 11 has been to encourage this. And so we, we read in verse 13 those words, all died in faith. And here we have a record of these three men and how it was and in what faith it was that they ended their lives. Their faith is defined by an action taken at a specific period. Do you notice? Each aspect of that action, in each of their cases, has to do with a future fulfillment, something that is yet to take place. Now, you can read their stories in Genesis, and their stories, like our stories, are not straightforward. We are not straightforward. If we are honest with ourselves, then we are all of us a jumble of contradictions. We all find within us, that is, if we have any self-awareness, any emotional intelligence, which is probably a challenge for some, but, but if we are aware at all about what's in our hearts, we will know that there are competing priorities, there are complex motivations, there are mixed messages. All of us, to one degree or another, have learned that the Reformation maxim in the Latin, justus, simul justus et peccator, simultaneously, one and the same time, we are justified and yet still sinful, that that plays its way out in our lives. The church and the individual believer are at one and the same time justified and sinful. And that is true of us, and it's true certainly of these great saints of God in the past. And yet here in the record, in the holy record of God's Word, the Holy Spirit has left us with a record of their faith. 
And that's surprising, as we shall see. We begin with the faith of Isaac. Now, if you read the record of Isaac's life, uh, it, it uh, it does him no favors. If you read Genesis and the story of Isaac's life. In fact, even the incident that's recorded here, as we shall see, does him and his faith little credit. There is, in fact, not very much to say about Isaac. G. Campbell Morgan, the great preacher, suggests that by temperament, Isaac was a passive rather than an active person. We might say about Isaac that life happened to Isaac. We don't read of him going out and doing anything, taking any initiative, showing any energy or zeal. Things just happened to him. I mean, the most significant thing about Isaac's life is the story that's just been told in, in Hebrews chapter 11, when his father, when he was about 25 to 30 years of age, his father took him with some wood to build an altar and to bind him up and lay him on the altar and offer him as a sacrifice to God. And the most amazing thing about Isaac in the story is that Isaac doesn't seem to mind. He's going along with, for the journey. You know, he goes off with his dad and the two servants. He gets to the place. His dad says, will you carry the wood to the altar? He's nearly at the place of sacrifice before he comes up with a question. And it's not really a very bright question. It's, it's a kind of obvious question. He asks his father, where is, where is the animal to be or sacrificed? And his dad says, God will provide the animal, my son. And he accepts it. And somehow or other, the next thing you notice, he's on the altar all tied up, ready for his father to pierce the neck. No resistance, nothing. Very passive. I mean, there's a great love story associated with, uh, with Isaac. But his marriage, in his marriage, he is as passive as he was in the sacrifice. He, he doesn't look up christianmingle.com. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't go to TSF, our 20s and 30s ministry meetings, in order to find a friend. He doesn't get involved in the college ministry because he might meet someone there. No, he does nothing. All you read about Isaac is that he went out to the field one day to do his field job, doing the, the, the reaping of the harvest. He goes out to the field. This is what it says. Isaac went out into the field... He lifted up his eyes, and lo, Rachel, uh, sorry, Rebecca. That was it. He didn't do anything to find Rebecca. Rebecca was just handed to him on a plate. He goes out to the field. He lifts up his eyes, and lo, and behold, Rebecca. And it's all done. And that's all you read. The good thing about Isaac is he doesn't have any more wives or women in in the process. Rebecca is it for the rest of his life, but that's it. That's the story, period. Until you get to the end of his life. And uh, we're going to be looking into that in a moment. So he's a steady, unremarkable person. Except that he knew himself to be a son of the promise, a covenant child. He knew himself to be among those who believe. God had come to him and after his father's death had repeated the promise that he'd made to his father Abraham 
I will multiply your offspring in the, uh, as the stars of the heaven, language God had used to Abraham. He will give your offspring all these lands, that is Canaan, ultimately. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That was the promise of the Messiah. So he received the promise. He believed the promise. He embraced the promise. And we're told that what Isaac did throughout his whole life was this. He went around the promised land, and wherever he camped, he dug wells. And if there were enemies and they came along and they moved him on, he moved on and he dug a well. And if things weren't growing very well in that area, he moved on and he dug a well. He littered the promised land with wells. That was Isaac's way, very creative, of saying God's promised us this land and one day we're all going to come back here and all my descendants are going to find themselves falling down into wells that I dug. <laughs> it was, it was, that was his life. He, but all of that stuff he's doing is telling you he believes the promise of God. Well, now it's the end of his life. Now it's the end of his life. He has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And he likes Jacob. In fact, the Bible says he loved Jacob. Sorry, Esau. I'm getting my Esau's and Jacob's mixed up. Uh, he loved Esau. In other words, he played favorites, which was disappointing. And uh, he loved Esau, the Bible tells us, for one specific reason. Apparently, Esau was a good hunter. He hunted deer, and his dad loved venison. And apparently Esau made a very good venison dish. And it tells us in the Bible that Isaac loved Esau because he loved the food. There you have it. In his old age, his natural passivity has become total inertia. That and eating all the venison that he's, been, that he's been eating. Now, he knew what God intended. There was a revelation from God that they, he and Rebekah got before the birth of these twin boys. And the revelation of God was this, the older will serve the younger. He knew that. Rebekah knew that. Rebekah and her son Jacob both knew that. And they both believed it. And if Isaac was passive, his wife Rebekah and his son Jacob were the exact opposite. They were active. They were always up to something. They were scheming and they were playing everything to get this promise true. It was because they believed the promise of God. That was a good thing. But they took it into their own hands to make the promise of God come true. Rebekah was at it from the earliest days. Jacob, as soon as he could, cooperated with his mother in ensuring that he got the promise. And so you fast forward to the very end of his life. By this time, Isaac's blind. He's hardly moving at all now. They have to come and see him. Rebecca gets in ahead, and she gets, tells her son, Jacob, I'm going to make, I've been watching how your brother Esau, what he does with the venison that makes it so attractive to your dad, and I'm going to send it with you, and you will take it to your dad, and your dad will think it's Esau, and will bless you, give you the blessing, the covenant blessing. 
And Jacob said to his mom, but mom, as soon as I walk in, dad's going to know that it wasn't Esau. I mean, I'm a, I look after myself, I shave, and I put on cologne, and, and he'll know it's not my brother because my brother never baths or shaves or does anything. He's a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. Smooth man. <laughs> and that's what he says in the King James Version of the Bible. That's what it says. Esau, my brother, is a hairy man. I am a smooth man. And he will never recognize it. And you know the story. They get the goat skins, they put it on. They get the spray that you put on to make yourself smell sweaty or whatever it is you did in those days to, make, to smell sweaty so that Esau would think this is, or Jacob would, Isaac would think this was Esau in front of him. But it's really Jacob, if you know what I mean. Get it, work it out for yourself. And there, there they are. He comes in with the food and Isaac it's a wee bit hesitant at the beginning because his voice sounds more like Jacob than Esau, but he smells like Esau and tastes like Esau as he starts to eat the food. And he gives the blessing, the covenant blessing, to Jacob. A little short time later, Esau comes in. This is the real Esau this time. His father says, Who are you? I'm Esau. Because his dad hadn't seen Esau the last time. He just smelt him. I'm, I'm Esau, he said. Well, I've just given the blessing to somebody I thought was you. Well, it wasn't me, Dad. Well, it was my brother. And this is where the statement of this verse kicks in. We ask ourselves, what was it about Isaac, that was a believing action, when he tried to give the blessing, I mean, he believed the blessing of God, but he tried to give it to the older boy instead of the younger boy, as God had said he would do it. Well, how does faith act there? The answer is in the response to discovering that he had done the wrong thing in his mind. The Bible says that he trembled exceedingly he realized that he had resisted. He had believed the promise of God, but he'd resisted the intention of God by trying to bestow that promise on his favorite instead of on the one God had chosen. He trembled exceedingly, but he didn't try to reverse the blessing. Once he'd realized he'd done what he'd done that was wrong, he stuck to it. He said, God's in this. This is God's will. I recognize this was God's will from the beginning. I bless him, yes, and he will be blessed. And in fact, God uses that story. The Apostle Paul uses it in Romans chapter 9 when he says this, Through the, though the children were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not because of works, but because of He who calls. The choice of Jacob was not the choice of the better man. The choice of Jacob was not the choice of a man who had a nicer nature. Esau might have been a much nicer man. It wouldn't have been hard to be not worse than J Jacob when it came to personality. He was a conniving kind of character. 
cunning kind of character. But in the end, God chose Jacob because God chose Jacob. That's what he does with people. In his electing power, he has no eye for anything you bring to the table, anything you bring to the table by your good works or your personality or your background. He chooses because he chooses. It is all of God from beginning to end. It's not because he foresees your faith. It's not because he foresees that you will be a better person or do greater things. He chooses whom he pleases and demonstrates that. And he will have whom he pleases no matter who is doing the shenanigans to try and divert him from his purpose. Nothing, nothing will divert God from his purpose of calling his covenant people to himself in the world. And in the end, Isaac confirms this, and Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob. So we have the faith of Isaac. Now let's look at the faith of Jacob. A little snippet we have here. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now, I said there's a kind of pattern going on here. Abraham is a very active person. God appears to him seven times. Every time God appears to Abraham, it's to kind of move him, transition him into the next phase of his life, his journey of faith and hope and so on. Jacob, Jacob is a man who has five encounters with God. Each of them, God is coming to him to weaken him, to humble him, to rein him in, to rebuke him, to censure him. That's what Jacob needed because Jacob was an activist. Jacob was always up to something. He was always trying something, and very often he was trying the wrong things, and God had to rein him in, pull him back, and so on. You couldn't keep Jacob on a seat. Jacob would not be able to sit through one of my sermons. He would be a pain in the neck of a child to try and control. Seriously. That's the kind of person he was. And God appears to him to rein him in and to discipline him. But the thing you have to say about Jacob is this. Though his relationship to God was a bit dodgy at times, though he was pulling and shifting and, and constantly kind of being in attention with God just because of his nature and his character, he was fundamentally a believer. Now, maybe you see yourself in that this morning. Maybe your life has been one of, of kind of being in tension with God about some things. You're questioning Him at various points in your circumstances, in your career, and you wonder, you wonder what kind of relationship you have with God, and yet you know in your heart that no matter how angry with God you become, or no matter how fearful you may become, or how, how, how irritated you may be with God and with God's church, perhaps, that you cannot let him go. Jacob is that kind of person. And now we're at the end of his life, and he was dying. That is, he was on the verge of dying. He's now living in Egypt. He's not living in the promised land. He's had this long history. I mean, if Isaac just lifted up his eyes and lo, there was Rebekah. Jacob had done his utmost to try and get his Rachel. He had worked seven years for his Rachel. 
They had a great wedding plan. She came down the aisle. They were married. She pulled back her veil. It wasn't Rachel. It was her sister Leah. I mean, Jacob had the worst father-in-law in living history. And then he had to work another seven years to get his Rachel. His, he had a turbulent life, but at least he was working to get his girl. And the Bible says about Jacob, Jacob loved Joseph. Joseph was Rachel's child. Leah mass-produced children. Rachel took a long time to have a child, and Joseph was Rachel's child. And even though old Jacob was not the favorite when he was growing up, he did the same thing with his children. And he loved Joseph. And you know the story, the amazing technicolored coat that he wore. The Bible doesn't actually say that, but that's what he wore, a sign of favoritism. And now it's at the end of his life. Now he's, he had lost Joseph. For most of his life, he'd lost Joseph. His heart was broken, aged him terribly. And then he rediscovered Joseph. God had brought Joseph back into his life, and now Joseph is the wealthy, influential governor of all Egypt. And he's provided a place for them. They've all gone there. All the tribes of Jacob have gone there to settle and to find a place of refuge. And what does Jacob do at the end of his life? He worshiped, we're told. He worshiped. He knew that he was going to God and Christ, to Abraham and Isaac. He was going to dwell with them in the presence of God. That was his comfort. That was his faith. And Jacob commends the God of the covenant to Joseph and to Joseph's family. He blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless your boys. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. What was he doing? If Isaac had had to divide the blessing and give a common blessing to Esau, Esau, you're not a believer, but you will have a great family. You will be a great nation, Edom. You will have much wealth and great strength and power and your people will go on into the mists of history and still be identifiable in the year 2018 as your descendants. You got a common blessing. Jacob had received the covenant blessing, the blessing that comes only to God's people. And now he's in Egypt, and he looks at Joseph, and he looks at these two boys that Joseph has had in Egypt. These boys have been born in Egypt. They are, they've been brought up in the nobility of Egypt. They have great wealth in Egypt. They're going to inherit a great estate in Egypt. And as their grandfather, Jacob looks at these two boys and his great longing for them is 
that above all the wealth of Egypt, above all that Egypt has to offer, that they should have the covenant blessing and be part of the covenant people of God. That's why he singles them out. That's why instead of there being a tribe of Joseph, there is a tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh, his two sons instead. And they are enfolded into the family of God. They become part of the church of that period, the 12 tribes of Jacob, of Israel. And you know, we Christian parents should analyze what our ambitions are for our children. We need to examine our own hearts at times. What is it we really want for our children as Christian children, as covenant children? Is it that we want them simply to be successful, marry well, get a good job, have advancement in the world? Is that the primary thing? There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. That's wonderful if it comes your way. But is that the primary thing? Is that the thing that's uppermost in our minds? Is that the thing that would give us the greatest satisfaction? Or are we concerned, as Jacob was for these boys, his grandsons, that they should be covenant children, that they should be within the covenant of God's love, part of the church of God, the family of God, where they can receive the blessings of God, where the powers of the age to come could be evident amongst them through the sacraments of the gospel church. Is that what our concern is for our people, our children, our grandchildren? You see... People may discover things about God according to the natural law. They may look at the natural world and come to the conclusion there is a God. He is the author of everything. They can come to that conclusion, but it's only within the church, only within the covenant community that we have communion with God, that we have a relationship with God and with the people of God. I think of these words that I used to meditate on as a little boy. One thing I've asked of the Lord and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to behold the beauty of the Lord. The house of God is the church of God, purchased by His blood. And what will glory be? What will glory be but to behold the beauty of the Lord face to face? But in the meantime, the work begins in His church where the powers of the age to come are present in the Word and in the sacrament, where God says through His sacramental Word, hear me speak to you. Hear me speak to you with a created human voice, my Word into your ears. See me, see me in these visual elements of bread and wine. Taste my promises. Hold them in your hands. Put them to your lips. Taste them with your tongue. Be nourished by the spiritual realities that are thereby indicated. God is sacramentally present with us in the Word and on the table with His people 
to feed his people, nourish his people, cherish his people, touch his people, so that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. They're there to be heard, there to be seen, there to be touched, there to be handled, there to be tasted. You only get that in the church of God. The only place to meet with God is when we're meeting with Him in worship in the assembly, the the ecclesia, the assembly of His people. Jacob understood that. And he blessed these two boys. And in the blessing of them, when they're brought to him, Joseph's not too pleased about this. He crosses his hands, and he blesses the older rather than the younger. Now, you need to remember that we're talking about a different kind of blessing than the Jacob Esau thing. Jacob was the believer in the covenant family, and Esau wasn't. Here are two boys, both of whom are in the covenant family, but God has something for them in the future within the church, and He's doing this as a prophecy. Now, I'm just going to pause here just for one second. I'm preaching this morning about these brothers, Ephraim and Manasseh. That's just where we've ended up today. And this is a very special day because my little brother is here worshiping with us today. If you're sitting on this side and you stand up to sing and you can't see the front of the church, that's because he's there. Because my parents loved him more than me and they fed him. (laughs) And he's six foot six or whatever thing he is, okay? And he's got the hair as well, the hair and the height. Anyway, but that's just a common distinction, okay? That's just a co- of common grace between him and I. There's no, we're fortunately both covenant children and trusting in the Lord Jesus, and that's the main thing. The main thing's the main thing. Well, in this, in this back to the, the text, uh, I had to do that. I had to embarrass him while he was here. I'm not going to get a chance <laughs> again. And uh, he'll, he'll get back to me, don't worry. He's bigger than I am. And uh, he just has to sit on me, and I'm absolutely uh, destroyed. Here in this story, there is a prophetic word going on here. Because eventually, when the 12 tribes return to Israel, to Canaan, and they settle there, there's going to be a great split between Judah and Benjamin south and the 10 tribes to the north. And in the north, Ephraim, the younger brother, Ephraim, would reign over the northern tribes in the future. It was a prophetic word. And they needed that prophetic word from Jacob in order to give them spiritual nourishment and strength. So as things unfolded, they recognized the hand of God in the matter. So that leads us lastly to the faith of Joseph. And I've not left myself any time for this, but you know the story of Joseph But all the the writers concerned about is the last words of Joseph. In fact, the very last words in the book of Genesis are that there was a coffin in Egypt. When Jacob died, he asked that they would take his body back and bury it in Canaan 
next to his wife, Rachel. He wanted them to do that because he wanted them to remember God had claimed that land. But when it came to Joseph's dying, Joseph wanted them to keep his bones with them because it was going to be a long time before they ever got back to Canaan, over 400 years. And he wanted his bones to be among them as a kind of sign and signal of God's promise that one day, one day, they would go back to Canaan. That God had not forgotten his promises to them as time passed, as the, the, the lush land that they were living in at the time when Genesis ends would give way to the harsh repression of slavery and cruelty and adversity during that period when they were helping to build the pyramids. But that God would remember his promise. And Joseph says to them, I want you to take my bones back one day. And when the fullness of time came, Moses took his bones through the wilderness. Joshua took his bones into the promised land, and they buried them at Shechem. Because both Jacob and Joseph had learned something from the story of their father, Isaac. And we saw it last week, just in verse 19. Isaac was as good as dead in Abraham's mind. Isaac was as good as dead when he was bound and laid on the altar. And as his father Abraham lifted up the knife to kill him, Abraham had already, had already come to terms with the fact that he was dead. And when God intervened and God spared him, it was like a resurrection from the dead to Abraham. And Abraham told his children, it was a resurrection from the dead. He was dead to me, and God gave him back to me. And God is going to do this. There is going to be a real resurrection of the dead. And Jacob wanted buried in Canaan. And Joseph wanted his bones brought back to Canaan because the Messiah would come there. And the Messiah's resurrection would happen there. And that resurrection would be the pledge of our resurrection. He believed in the promises and the purposes of God. Today, you, you have to believe the promises of God. Whoever believes in Jesus has, right now has, eternal life. If we confess Him before men, He'll confess us before His Father and the holy angels in glory. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And this morning as we come to this table, what we need to do is we need, having heard this word from heaven, we need to taste the bread of heaven and drink the wine of heaven and remind ourselves that today God lives and that one day we shall sit at the table and instead of the bread representing the body of Jesus, Jesus himself will be there in his resurrection body. And instead of the wine merely representing the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin, we will drink with Jesus in the kingdom of God with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph
and our parents and our grandparents in the faith. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus and sing and shout the victory. Taste, eat, drink, live. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please take your word and fortify us by it, strengthen us by it, that we might live through it. And as we come to your table, that we might feast on Christ in our hearts by faith as we take these that are merely the elements of a spiritual reality, the spiritual reality of the Holy Spirit's presence both within us and through this sacramental word and these sacramental elements, we pray. Amen.